it pleases me to introduce tonight's moderator, Henry Weinstein. After working for the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and San Francisco Examiner, Weinstein joined the Los Angeles Times in 1978 and spent 30 years there as a staff writer specializing in law, labor, politics, including considerable investigative reporting in each of those fields. During his career, he wrote stories from nearly do three dozen states, including numerous exposés about the exploitation of poor people. Please welcome Mr. Henry Weinstein. Jim is a journalist of considerable accomplishment. He uh, won a Pulitzer Prize at the Wall Street Journal in the late 80s for um, exposés that he and uh, Daniel Hertzberg did on the last major financial uh, set of scandals, the Milk and Bosky junk bond scandals and related things in the 1980s. He has been a, a columnist for a number of publications, including Smart Money. He teaches at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, and he is about to start a Saturday column in the New York Times uh, shortly. Jim is a native of Quincy, Massachusetts, on the banks of the Mississippi. I'm Quincy, Illinois, I'm sorry. There's two Quincy's. I keep forgetting about that, think about that Patriot Ledger in, uh, in Massachusetts, but Quincy, Illinois. He then went to DePaul, a fine school. <laughs> Aha! DePaul is a school that has produced a number of very good journalists and is the home base, started the Society for Professional Journalists started there. Um, after that, Jim went to Harvard Law School. Um, and after doing very well there, he joined one of America's most powerful law firms, Cravath, Swain and Moore in New York, and Cravath played a, uh, a role in the first book that Jim wrote called The Partners, a very good book about America's um, major firms. Three years of practicing law, three or four years, I guess was Jim felt was sufficient, and he then joined the American <laughs> lawyer, and uh, uh, where he wrote and edited, and he has been a, a full-time journalist as well as a teacher now for 30-plus years, if my, if, my, if my counting is right. Um, most of Jim's books have dealt with the conduct, and I guess I should say the misconduct, of the rich and powerful. Um, as he notes, um, and that includes, of course, this book, and as Jim notes in this book, in the old days in England, one of the penalties for perjury was they would cut out your tongue. Um, one of the other things that they would do occasionally would basically strap you to a pillory sort of, you know, with, with both of your ears. Of course, now in the United States, the maximum penalty for perjury is five years, and people rarely get that. In this particular book, Jim focuses on the cases involving four prominent people who were deemed to have been at the top of their fields in one way or another in the United States in recent years. The first is the diva of the dining room, Martha Stewart. Then we have Scooter Libby, who was the chief assistant to Vice President Dick Cheney. We have Bernard Madoff, who pulled off an extraordinarily large Ponzi scheme. And then we have Barry Bonds, who used artificial chemicals to swindle the home run record of the true sultan of SWAT, Henry Aaron. Um, my first editorial comment of the evening. It won't be the last. Um, 
our discussion tonight, um, which deals not just with ordinary lying, like saying, Mom, I didn't steal the cookies. Because this book raises much more profound questions about candor and what candor really means. And as this book, to me, or the discussion tonight, could not be more timely for a variety of reasons, including something that happened over the weekend that is quite monumental, and, ha- and I hope we'll get some serious coverage in the press in the coming days. Late Friday, Neil Kotyal, who is the Solicitor General of the United States, which is one of the highest-ranking positions in the Justice Department, did something very, very unusual. He posted something on the official blog of the Justice Department acknowledging something truly horrible that government officials did almost 70 years ago. He said that, quote-unquote, mistakes were made during actions taken by one of his predecessors, Charles Fahey, when the United States government was defending the internment of the Japanese during the Second World War. Now, Neil Kotchel is an excellent lawyer and he's an honorable man, but as I tell my students in first-year legal writing, when you hear somebody lapse into the passive voice, mistakes were made, you can be sure that something much worse happened, normally lying, and in this particular case, it was the failure to disclose to the Supreme Court that the most, that the vast, vast majority of Japanese people in this country presented no threat whatsoever to the United States, but this was not disclosed to the Supreme Court, and in one of those waves of patriotism that we periodically go through, this one not long after Pearl Harbor, Thousands and thousands of Japanese, including people that lived within blocks of here, were rounded up, had their homes taken away and put in camps for several years. They lost their homes, they lost their property, and it was, and it was one of the, and, and this was upheld by the Supreme Court, even by very liberal justices, as I say, in a wave of patriotism. And anyhow, so I just think that this acknowledgement by the Justice Department, late as it may be, was a very positive, a very positive development. And I know that the families of Fred Karamazzo and Gordon Hirabayashi have said that they were appreciative that this small step was taken. Now, before we start I start asking Jim questions and getting his responses. I want to read one pa- a couple of passages from the, his, one of his last bestseller, or maybe his next to last bestseller, <laughs> called Den of Thieves, um, which was a great book about the Milken Bosky junk bond era. And I want to read you something because he said something that was very prescient leading into the events that gave rise to this book. And here's what he says. And, he's, and, and the setup for this is that all that Michael Milken went to prison for a while, he wound up with still over half a billion dollars, maybe more. He says, Michael Milken may be an extreme example, but every major participant in these crimes emerged from the experience as a wealthy man, at least by the standards of the average American. Such results have understandably led many to question whether justice was served and whether future scandals will be deterred. Since the end of the 1980s, profound changes have already taken place on Wall Street. Suffering from extensive layoffs and a recession, as well as the aftermath of this scandal, Wall Street has given every sign of being severely chastened. Individuals may have survived, but their institutions have foundered, with Drexel in bankruptcy and Kidder Peabody quietly put up for sale by General Electric. 
Solomon Brothers caught in a treasury market scandal was eventually fined 200 million, 290 million, and it too had to struggle to survive. New instances of major securities prosecutions were few, and the takeovers that spawned so much crime nearly vanished from the financial landscape. The perception, at least, was that insider trading and more devious forms of securities fraud had become far less prevalent. Yet, history offers little comfort. The famed English jurist Sir Edward Coke wrote as early as 1602 that, quote, fraud and deceit abound in these days more than in former times. Wall, unquote. Wall Street has shown itself peculiarly susceptible to the notion refined by Mike Milken and Ivan Bosky and their allies, that reward need not be accompanied by risk. Perhaps no one will ever again dominate the financial world like Milken with his junk bonds, and then get this next sentence. But surely a Pied Piper will emerge in another sector. Think derivatives. <laughs> Over time, the financial markets have shown remarkable resiliency and an ability to curb their own excesses. Yet they are surprisingly vulnerable to corruption from within. If nothing else, the scandals of the 1980s underscore the importance and wisdom of the securities laws and their vigorous enforcement. The Wall Street criminals were consummate evaluators of risk, and the equation as they saw it suggested little likelihood of getting caught. So is that what motivated the people that... You wrote about they didn't think there was much chance of getting well, caught? Hearing that again after nearly 20 years, I, I wish maybe that hadn't quite been so accurate. But um, absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the mysteries that drew me to this topic, to these four stories in particular, was th these were not just street criminals pulled aside and being asked, oh, did you just sell that bag of marijuana? Um, they had everything. They had wealth, they had fame, they had celebrity, achievement. Um, they were well-educated. They were role models, they were business leaders, and yet they brazenly lied. And not just lied, but they lied under oath. They committed criminal lying. And so my question was, why would they risk so much for so little evident gain? Um, why would powerful, influential people like this lie? And the answer, the simple, the, the answer is quite complex. I mean, I think, I would like to think you have to read the whole book to really understand the nuances of that, but the short and simple answer is that they all thought they would get away with it. That they, just like the insider traders in Wall Street in the 80s, or indeed again in the recent Raj Raj Ratnam trial, clearly they weighed the risks and the rewards, and the, even though the rewards compared to what they could lose seemed so small, the odds of getting caught in their view were so slender that they really didn't hesitate. I mean, they, they immediately, their impulse was to lie and then to keep lying. And um, I think it's a, a very a sobering thought when you see this in context that the deterrence and that the element of law enforcement was so insignificant in their thinking. And there's no, no better example than, than Bernie Madoff who in fact actually did get away with the lying for over 20 years. And it was only the financial crisis and the inevitable collapse of a Ponzi scheme that forced him to plead guilty to in fact perjury. Many people don't realize his first plea was to lying under oath. Right. Well, so let me ask you something else in terms of, your, of the bigger picture here. You say in the book that we appear to be on the brink of becoming a society where perjury is a norm. That's a, that's a, that's a strong statement. Um, and I was just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that. 
Well, I think my initial impulse for that was there aren't any statistics. You, you can't look up on the Internet right now and find out how many pending perjury or false statement cases there are at any given moment. Um, but every single prosecutor I talked to, without an, any exception, um, told me that they, they get lied to under oath or in, in circumstances where lying is a crime every day. One prosecutor said, I come to work every day expecting to be lied. The only question in my mind is how good are they going to be at it? How much can they obstruct? Can we make a case for it? And in most cases, the answer is that they can't. But nevertheless, the lying is rampant. Since the book came out, I've been on a number of uh, talk shows and situations with judges who have also been coming forward to say that you know there's an avalanche of going on. It's going on in our courtrooms all the time. Um, so I don't think there's any real question that it's it's reached huge proportions. You know, in fact, your your comments about the the Japanese internment situation made me think of uh, some other questions that have surfaced since the book came out, which a number of people have said, well. You know, lying and everybody lies. Is it any different? And what's so? What's why is truth so important anyway? What difference does it make? Isn't this you know much ado about nothing? And it's kind of shocked me. And in fact, I wasn't really even prepared to have to answer such a fundamental question like that. <laughs> but if you want to see the answers, you can look at examples like this, where history is full of examples where powerful individuals, governments, decide to create their own realities. Every totalitarian state has been built on laws. And here we have a very sorry example in American history where we took a class of people and put them in camps, and that was based on a falsehood. Do we need any more examples? I mean, I don't think there's anything more important to civilization as we know it than the primacy of truth and the obligation under oath to tell the truth in a judicial proceeding. And one of the things that's really striking about the book is that is one of the things that in, in the section of the book that deals with Scooter Libby. And when it appears that it is almost inevitable that Scooter Libby will be indicted for lying in connection with the outing of, this, of CIA agent Valerie Plame, whose husband Joseph Wilson had dared to write an op-ed raising questions about what the administration had done, a United States Senator, Kay Bailey Hutchinson, goes on Meet the Press on a Sunday, and says, uh, well, gee, I hope if they indict him, it's for a real crime, not some technical thing like perjury. I mean, how did that strike you? Yeah, I, I, was, I, was, I was stunned by that. I was, I was horrified by it. I mean, and that, that would essentially kind of go unchallenged in the public discourse, that a United States senator is essentially dismissing perjury as a crime. But, I mean, look, look at the environment. We, um, and I'll be completely nonpartisan here, in, in a Democratic president, Bill Clinton, we had a president who committed perjury, who only grudgingly acknowledged it and has never actually apologized for it. And in his successor, Republican George Bush, we had a president who said he wouldn't tolerate lying or outing or national security breaches in administration. When confronted with evidence of that, ignored it. When one of his top aides was convicted, Scooter Libby, of multiple counts of lying under oath, he commuted his sentence so that he did not spend one day of the three-year prison term that he got in jail. He essentially condoned it. So what kind of message has our political leader sent? And I chose the Libby case very consciously because I think it shows the pernicious impact of lying at the highest level of government. And again, not even just lying in a press conference, but taking the oath to tell the truth and lying about it. Your book suggests that perhaps two other high-ranking government officials 
should have been charged with um, making false statements, Karl Rove and Richard Armitage. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, because um, I think the public understanding of this case is, has been severely distorted by the sort of propaganda put out by Libby's uh, Republican allies, which attacked the special counsel, Patrick Fitzgerald, as being some kind of attack dog, overzealous, partisan. Um, and also, it was completely distorted by the fact that while well, Scooter Libby, who committed the crimes and was convicted of them, never went to jail, a reporter, Judy Miller of the New York Times, did go to jail. There's an irony for you. And that kind of swept public attention away from the actual facts of the crime. But um, Libby lied on multiple occasions. But the actual sources for the column by Bob Novak that outed Valerie Plame as a, as a CIA agent, we now know were... Uh, they were, it was not uh, Scooter Libby. I mean, one thing he did tell the truth about it was he was not the source for the Novak column. He was trying to plant the story all, everywhere else yeah, that right. anyone would listen, but right. nevertheless, he was not the source for that. The sources were Richard Armitage in the State Department, a very close um, uh, confidant of Colin Powell, and Karl Rove in the White House. And um, they were both questioned about this. Uh, Armitage came forward and, and said that he was a source, uh, Karl Rove. Initially, uh, President Bush was told by his... Bush, very, in very national statements, made a big deal of saying, I'm not going to tolerate these leaks, I'm going to find out, I'm going to get to the bottom of this, and, and I'm going to fire anyone involved in the leak of this, and, and who committed this national security breach. So uh, before he could, of course, get to the bottom of it, Henry Gonzalez, you know, an eminent jurist, we know. Also Al, know. Al, you, mean Al, you mean Alberto? Alberto Gonzalez, I'm sorry, right. yes. Yeah. Said to him, I said, you know, look, um, we don't want to know anything about this, so don't ask any questions. And President Bush defied him and grabbed the phone and Carl Grove and said, I just want to know, did you have anything to do with this? Now, I know this information from previously undisclosed notes of the FBI interview with President Bush. So President Bush subsequently testified that Karl Rove said, well, you know, I do talk to Karl Rove occasionally, but the subject of Valerie Plame never came up. So he basically, he lied to the President of the United States. So there's law number one. He goes before the grand jury. He now says, well, yes, I did tell Novak that she was a CIA agent. And then they said, well, did you tell any other reporter? Oh, no, 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 no. I, in fact, I only confirmed it. He already knew. I'm not a source of this. You're certain that no one, you told absolutely no one else? He said no. So then the White House was kind of slowly going through all these documents, and um, eventually an email emerged in which Karl Rove discusses his conversation with Time Magazine reporter Matt Cooper and his efforts to get the Valerie Plame story into Time Magazine. Needless to say, completely contradicting this story. And... Um, I will say to his credit, his lawyer said, look, Carl, we're turning this email over and we're going back to the grand jury and you are going to correct your earlier statements, which he did, and by the way, escaped indictment by a hair's breadth. Now, actually correcting a false statement is not a defense, but that's another issue. I can talk about that more later. So, okay, so Dick Richard Armitage, he had volunteered that he thought he was the source. Right. So... Uh, in announcing Libby's indictment, um, Patrick Fitzgerald said as part of the narrative that Scooter Libby was, had leaked the identity to Times reporter Judy Miller, who was the first reporter to be told of her identity. Um, so famed 
Watergate reporter Bob Woodward of the Washington Post was listening to the press conference and heard him say that Judy Miller was the first person to get her, her, the identity leaked to her, which I guess kind of put Judy Miller at the front of the pack of various journalists. <laughs> so Bob Woodward immediately called Richard Armitage and said, uh, Dick, don't you remember? I believe I was the first reporter <laughs> who got this information. Even though he didn't write about it. Even though he never wrote about it. And so Armitage is kind of stammering, saying, well, whatever. So then anyway, having now been you know, put on notice by Woodward that this might be an issue, Armitage calls up and says, oh, by the way, I guess I, quote unquote, forgot in my earlier grand jury testimony that I also leaked it to Bob Woodward. Now, does that pass the common sense test? I don't think so. I mean, if, you know, he's the most famous reporter in America. He's the first choice of the person to leak to. He's the first one who gets it, and now Armitage doesn't remember it. So all I can tell you is that the FBI agents investigating this all voted unanimously that both Rove and Armitage should have been charged with false statements. And Fitzgerald, for whatever reason, decided not to. And I, I don't necessarily quarrel with his decision, but he did do an extraordinary thing, which is also some of the news in my book. He um, used an exception to grand jury secrecy, which calls that you can disclose testimony in national security instances, and wrote a letter to President Bush, because he felt that both uh, Rove and Armitage had posed a security risk to the United States and then had not been candid about it, including into their sta his statement, Rove's statement to the president. And he summarized the evidence. He sent this letter to Bush, and I'm sure he expected Bush, based on his promises, to fire Rove and to fire Armitage at the very least. He never heard another word. Bush did nothing. Roe finally resigned over a year later of his own volition. And Armitage has a private consulting firm. Armitage left when Colin Powell left and has a very successful uh, consulting firm. Now, you just made a point that I think we should not lose, and that goes to the, the question of that merely correcting a statement doesn't get you off a hook, because it takes us to one of the most dramatic stories from my personal point of view in this entire book, which is the story of a young man working on Wall Street, Douglas Faneuil, who was the assistant to Martha Stewart's stockbroker, who got caught up in Martha Stewart's insider trading on Imclone, which led to her perjury prosecution. And I would like you to talk a little bit about Doug Faneuil, because I think what's striking about this particular incident, it shows how a per couple of, the, how a young person can get pushed into doing the wrong thing, and how loyalty can overcome someone's sense of honor, at least for a period of time. Yeah, I mean, the story of Doug Fanuel to me is, stands at the heart of this book, and at least for me, like so many good stories, it's, the meaning, it has, it, it's rich in meaning, and it, it, it kind of goes way beyond the, the mere facts of this. But you're right, he was the assistant to the stockbroker. He was 26 years old. He'd just been hired six months earlier at Merrill Lynch. This was his break on Wall Street. And his boss, Peter Bukanovic, Martha Stockbroker, was on vacation the week after Christmas. Doug was there manning the phones. When all of a sudden he gets this call from the chief executive of Imclone and all his family members who were dumping their shares. It turned out to be the day before the FDA turned down the company's only drug in the pipeline. So obviously it was going to have a devastating effect on the share price. So he doesn't know what to do. He thinks it's illegal for them to even to trade in it, which indeed it was. So he finally, he gets Peter on the phone, and there, he's telling him this news when all of a sudden Peter says, oh my God, we have to get Martha on the phone. So he then instructs 
uh, Doug, this young 26-year-old guy, to call Martha and to tell her that the chief executive and all of his family members are dumping 100% of their shares. And Doug, and Doug says, well, can I, can I do that? Is that okay? I mean, and Peter says, of course it's okay. That's the whole point here. You've got to tell her. So Doug reaches the office. Peter left a message. Martha gets the message, a message, by the way, that plays a pivotal role in the story at a later time, and calls Doug. Doug ends up being the one who takes the order. She treats him on the phone the way, she, as you may know, she treats many people that she deals with on the phone. Uh, he's left sort of quivering and fearful, and he does what she says, which is to sell all the shares after he tells her the news that everyone else involved is dumping their shares. So he, of course, once the investigation gets started, is pressured into various false stories. Now, I have to say, I went into all these stories with, I hope, with what was an open mind, that maybe these people were wrongly convicted. After all, Martha Stewart is still going around saying she's been persecuted for being a successful woman, and that she was telling the truth. She's still insisting on that. But here, here's the problem with the story. She sold the shares the day before the announcement, and the initial story that the stockbroker said to the, the compliance people at Merrill Lynch was, oh, this was just part of a tax loss selling plan. As you may know, if you sell stocks at a loss up to a certain amount, you can deduct them against gains and you can deduct them on your income tax. The problem with that story is that she sold the Imclone shares at a big gain. <laughs> no one is crazy enough to sell shares at a gain to, as part of a tax loss selling program. <laughs> so that impulsive alibi lasted for a little over 24 hours, at which point Peter, in, apparently in cahoots with Martha, cooked up this story that, oh, well, we had a prearranged kind of stop-loss order to sell at $60 a share. Now, the problem with that is they sold it more than $60 a share, but nevertheless, it was leased close. That was the story they settled on, and they wanted Doug to go along, which meant Doug could not disclose the pivotal information that he told Martha Stewart that the chief executive was dumping all of his shares. So, under pressure, look, he's, he's 26 years old, he's just gotten this job, he thought Peter was the best boss he ever had, he's talking about these advancement possibilities. Who is he to upset the apple cart with his boss and the office's biggest revenue producer, Martha Stewart? So he goes to the SEC, he goes along with the story. He doesn't exactly lie, he just omits all the critical information. And after a series of these events, uh, the prosecutor says, okay, Doug, the next step is you're gonna have to go in front of a grand jury, take the oath, and swear to tell the truth, and then repeat your story. And Doug, who was facing increasing problems with all of this, um, went home, looked at himself in the mirror, and basically said, okay, that's a line I can't cross. From my childhood, my education, it has been embedded in me that when you take that oath, you do not violate it. He'd already committed a crime, but he wasn't going to go any further. And he recanted, and he went in, and he was candid about what happened. Now, he, as, as he told the story to me, he did not exactly expect to be treated like a hero, <laughs> but he was not prepared for the fact that he was now treated as a criminal. Like many other characters in this book, he went in and he initially told a false story and he corrected it. By the way, omitting a material fact is as serious as misstating it. And they wanted him to plead guilty to two felonies. They wanted him to go to jail. They wanted to strip him of his voting rights, to be banned from the securities industry for the rest of his life. And they threw the book at him for reasons you know, we could talk about. And in, I'm sorry to say that in countless other instances in this book, including professional athletes who 
almost without exception, went before the grand jury and initially lied, and only when threatened with prosecution corrected their statements in many cases, and some of them had to be prosecuted, such as Marion Jones, um, not one of them that changed their story was ever charged with a false statement. Um, Karl Rove and Richard Armitage never charged with any kind of crime. Now, Doug eventually was allowed to plead guilty to a misdemeanor. He did, he, got a, he did not go to jail, though he could have for that, but he was banned from the securities industry for life. And basically, his life was completely upended. And apart from the manifest sort of un- injustice of seeing the rich and the powerful getting favorable treatment and the insignificant having the book thrown at them, I think the Doug Fanuel story illustrates the impact of perjury, not necessarily on the person who commits it, but on the otherwise innocent people who are drawn in the vortex. And because primarily of loyalty, which comes up over and over and over again in this book, otherwise people of good character, who I'm sure if you ask them, would you ever lie under oath, they'd say, oh, no, 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 I'd never do something like that. When put, when the crunch comes, they did all lie under oath. And he illustrates the fact that their lives, in many cases, were shattered. You know, Martha Stewart did her time in jail. She turned it into public relations coup, to which I tip my hat to her. Um, she's out on the celebrity circuit swanning around at fashion shows and I see Time Magazine just named her one of the 100 most influential people. And And says that she now no longer remembers what it is that she was charged with. Astoundingly, yes. Her latest public statement is that she can't remember what she was charged with, which by the way I suspect is another lie. Um, But you see the people, I mean, and the stockbroker has suffered tremendously, but you see a guy like Doug Fanuel whose life was shattered. And, you know, Martha Stewart may not care about that, but I don't say, I can't believe that anyone of good conscience could go through life with the fate of someone like that on their hands without feeling terrible about it. Right. I want to, I want to ask, make sure we get in at least one question about bonds and one question about Madoff. So let me ask you something about bonds. When Bonds first went in, Barry Bonds first went in front of the grand jury, the grand jury was not focused on Barry Bonds. The grand jury was focused on this company called Balco in the Bay Area that was marketing steroids to a bunch of people, and they were sort of focused on, on this guy, Victor Conti, that ran it, and on uh, the, the trainer for Bonds, Anderson. Right, Greg Anderson, and who distributed that. Greg Anderson, right, and who was a steroid uh, distributor. And so Bonds was offered, basically, all he had to do was tell the truth. Well, he had total immunity. Total immunity. For all crimes of right. every kind, except if he committed a false statement right. in the course of his testimony. So I guess the question is, was it a pure act of hubris that Bonds just couldn't admit that he had used steroids that would sort of cast doubts on his, per- on, on his performance? Do you think that was his motivation? Well, yes. I mean... This happened in 2003. He was in competition for the annual home run crown, and I guess longer term he was still in the running to get the all-time home run crown, and he was brazenly and rampantly using steroids. I mean, I I, I assume there isn't anyone who has the slightest doubt about that at this point. Um, But first of all, the, the Barry Bonds character is fascinating. I mean, he, as he himself testified, was born into baseball royalty. His father was a professional athlete and a star for the Giants. He, nothing, he was never treated like anyone else. From Willie Mays was his godfather. Willie Mays is his godfather. He gets, you know, he's recruited by every major uh, 
college team. He goes to Arizona. He gets his own SUV. He gets his own parking place. He's in a separate part of the locker room. He goes to Pittsburgh. He moves to San Francisco. He has a separate wing of the locker room cordoned off for him. He has his own lounge chair, I suppose even nicer than this, which is very comfortable, <laughs> where he gets special massages. None of the regular trainers can touch him. He has his own doctor. He has his Greg, and he has other specialists who are rubbing him and massaging him and doing all this sort of thing special. <laughs> he, I mean, I don't care about people's personal life in particular, but you know, he, he was, while he was married, he started having an affair with this woman, Kimberly Bell. Um, in the course of things, he said he never wanted to be married again after he got a divorce. Then one day he says, oh, by the way, another woman's moving into my apartment with me. I hope you don't mind. She kind of swallowed and went along with that. Then he said, oh, excuse me, I'm going to be gone for a week on my honeymoon because we're getting married. He went, went off on the honeymoon. The day he gets back from the honeymoon, he shows up and says, well, I don't see why anything should change just because I'm married. And <laughs> I mean, you know, no rules applied to him. So I don't think the, the idea that he was supposed to tell the truth ever really particularly registered. <laughs> Um, I think his motivation was he's taking the steroids. He can't admit that. He wants to keep taking them because he did. It wasn't like he stopped after he was questioned in this investigation or given immunity. And he well, eventually did get what he wanted, which was the home run crown. E even though by then he was physically unrecognizable from the person who had joined the, the Giants eight years earlier. And 70,000 people got up and cheer when he, when he gets the crown. And by the way... The commissioner of baseball says just last week that, oh, I don't think we have enough evidence to take the crown away from him. It, belong, it belongs to Hank Aaron. I mean, that's the kind of enabling that you see throughout this book. Yes, there is a lot of, there is a lot of enabling. And I, I guess the other thing I just feel like to say about that is, for any of you that have any doubts, you do not increase your head size by lifting weights, okay? <laughs> I think we can stipulate that you don't substantially increase your head size by, by lifting weights. Let's go to Madoff briefly. Um, one of the things that you say, I mean, Madoff is one of the things, for those of you that haven't Jim's book's got a great section on Madoff. There's also a terrific book, a somewhat lengthy book, um, written last year by a guy that tried to blow the whistle on him for years named Harry Markopoulos, who was never listened to by the SEC. I mean, he gave them documentation. And the thing about... There's two things about Madoff that I want to talk about. One is, is that as in 2006... People in the, in, the, in the SEC knew that he was lying, but they... They knew they, to a certainty. Well, yes. They knew it very strongly. I mean, to read your book. Yeah. They, they had a very strong indication, but they declined to refer it to the Justice Department for a perjury prosecution. And in the interim, in the period of time between the time that they decided not to do anything and the time when, the, when, when he finally gave up the ghost at the end of 2008, there were additional $45 billion in losses. And one of the things that you say in the book that's really striking to me, which I'd like you to talk about, is you say that at the SEC at the time, there was no zeal for exposing wrongdoers. Well, for those of you that don't remember, the SEC was created in 1933, in the wake of all the scandals during the Great Depression, the SEC was created to protect people. What happened in the entering period? I mean, that was supposed to be what they did, was to protect the public. They sure didn't show any sign of it in this, in this case. No, in fact, they showed an aversion to it. And I think that goes, that, this is something that also goes to the heart of the book. I mean, the, the, the Madoff story, I think, is, is utterly astonishing. And my approach to it, I think, is different from other stuff that's been, been written about him. Because... You know, the Ponzi scheme, although it was huge, it's just a Ponzi scheme. 
We've seen them throughout history. The question to me was, how did he get away with it for so long, and how did he survive not one, but four official SEC investigations into a trading operation that, in fact, was completely fictitious? And so my assumption was, well, he must have been the cunning, cunningest of lawyers in, in this situation, the greatest lawyer in financial history. And to my astonishment, he was a terrible liar. He may have been the worst liar of this group. I mean, can I just give you one example? He, um, he in his testimony, and there are many of these examples, but he, he had, the trading records indicated, had discovered the holy grail of investment, which is to only be in the market when the market is going up and never to be in the market when it's going down. <laughs> This is the financial equivalent of alchemy. He had, he had it. He'd found it. And quite naturally, the SEC was curious to know what the magic formula was. It had eluded every other investor and PhD and computer in human history. And so his answer was, and this isn't a direct quote, but it's pretty close. He said, he said well, it's like putting oranges and carrots in a blender. And if you put the blender on one speed, it comes out one way. And if you put the blender on another speed, it's another, or blah, blah, blah. And he goes off and on about like kind of cooking metaphors. And I mean, <laughs> oranges and carrots in a blender? It was ludicrous. I mean, I myself was like laughing at this testimony. He certainly couldn't have gotten in Martha Stewart's magazine with something well, that say, bad. I was thinking, oranges and carrots? I mean, I, may, I wonder if we should try it. But anyway. Um, <laughs> This was laughable, and, then, and they're replete with contradictions. So they knew, as you point out, they absolutely knew. And the, the, little, the younger guys were saying, we've got to do something about this, we've got to stop it, we've got to send him to the Justice Department, where I guarantee if he'd been referred to the Justice Department in weeks, if not days, they would have found out about this. But the higher-ups didn't want to do it. They were, they were saying things like, well, you know, We've been better not ask too many questions. What if we like, you know, these are powerful people. We might get sued. Um, or, you know, we've heard he might be the next SEC chairman, a rumor which, by the way, was started by Madoff himself. Um, and then at the very top, you know, the whole, the, the, the Bush administration, and I don't mean to pile on them, but these things do go to the top. Um, I think as the response in the, in the um, Libby case demonstrates quite clearly that despite the law and order rhetoric, this was not a law and order administration, not when it came to Wall Street and white collar criminals. And the message from the top was that the SEC had been somehow too hard on business. They'd gotten a lot of complaints and that they needed to adopt a sort of friendlier approach towards um, Wall Street executives. And so is it any surprise that there was a, a lack of zeal? And by the way, I can't say that I've seen much change because I mean, the, the failure, to, I mean, the, the Madoff case to me stands for the danger of beginning to just take perjury for granted and not being outraged and not caring anymore when it happens. It illustrates what happens when we don't pursue it and don't prosecute it as a serious crime it is. But um, to me, it also shows that if we don't have people at the top who send a powerful message, if we don't have deterrence and if we don't have reminders, that we're going to breed more Madoffs. I mean, for all I know, they're out there. And not one of these people. I got so upset writing this chapter that I had to get up from the keyboard and walk around the room and kind of take deep breaths. I got so angry at the failure to take their responsibilities seriously. And not one of the SEC people involved in this has been disciplined in any way or demoted for their behavior. One woman involved left the SEC before the scandal broke because she wanted to spend more time with her kids. 
there has been no disciplinary action taken whatsoever. And you've almost got to read it to see the, what a compelling case there is, but I leave you to judge whether we're getting the enforcement even now that we need and deserve. Well, well that makes you wonder, you know, we've had over the last couple of years, there's sort of become a mantra um, in discussing the economic meltdown that occurred there. There's been all this discussion of, um, well, that the, a certain kind of entity was, or a certain kind of bank or something was too big to fail because of the consequences it might have for the rest of the country. I'm also beginning to wonder if there are entities that are simply too big to prosecute because there's been no prosecution whatsoever of anyone other than you know maybe one small fry for having anything to do with the meltdown and there were clearly a lot of lies told well that's what i'm saying how many madoffs did we breed and you know and and and, and cousins of madoff in in this i mean what was a financial crisis but a house of cards built on lies lies of people who were applying for mortgages lies of the mortgage brokers who were encouraging them to get to make to tell these laws and get these and then were in turn lying on the papers that they submitted on their behalf lies by the mortgage uh, brokers who put these things together lies by the investment investment banks that as we saw in a recent goldman sachs case packaged these things and then didn't disclose to the buyers the true risk or who was behind them i mean the whole thing is just one big trail of laws and so many of those laws were told either under oath or in circumstances where a false statement is a crime. Not one prosecution coming out of these except for a handful of mortgage applicants who did brazenly lie on their applications. And what, what do you see as possible solutions? Well, look, the problem has built up over many, many years. There's no easy solution here, but I think at least there are two, two prongs to the solution. One starts at the top. I would you know, say it starts with President Obama. He's got to make it's clear that this has to be taken seriously. I think it would call for a comment in the State of the Union. The Attorney General has got to make it clear that these are crimes that are going to be prosecuted, and we've got to have some prosecutions. And the Wall Street area would be a very, I would think, politically good place to start uh, right now. But we need deterrence, and we need a commitment at the top, which we have not had over the last two administrations. And then all of us, I think each and every one of us has a role to play. We've got to stop enabling the people who are going around lying, not just under oath or in, or in criminal situations, but in all aspects of life. We have to deal with our colleagues at work. We have to recognize the importance of telling the truth, even when there are competing values. And we have to teach our children. I mean, thank God for the Doug Faneuils of the world who, when asked to tell a lie under oath, simply couldn't do it, not because there's a prosecutor standing at his side or the threat that he's going to be put in jail, but because his own moral makeup said, I can't do that and live with myself. We need people like that, and then we need, we need to be fostering people like that in our daily lives. Right. I thought one of the things that you said, I guess, in a prior interview is that at least Doug Faneuil can live with himself, and I just sort of often wonder sometimes, what do Barry Bonds and Martha Stewart and Scooter Libby think when they, and Bernie Madoff, well, we know Bernie Madoff's in jail, but what do, what he's do, a what sociopath, do, what so. do the rest of those people do when they, when they look in the mirror in the morning? You just sort of, it makes you wonder. I'd like to give you all now a chance to, uh, to ask some questions. One of the more disturbing, if not most disturbing, decisions that come out of the Supreme Court in the last few years was earlier this year, which was the Connick versus Thompson case, mm -hmm. where an individual was essentially denied a $14 million award after serving 14 years in prison, many of them on death row, because the prosecutors lied about the evidence. What does this say about our culture when the highest court in the country essentially institutionalizes lying through decisions such as that? The fact that prosecutors lie illustrates to me the fact, a point that I try to make in the book, is that there is no one is immune um, from the temptations of lying. Uh, I could mention the clergy, uh, Hollywood figures, but 
Lawyers pose a probably unusually dangerous threat, that judges and lawyers have to be the first line of defense in this. So it is an even graver threat to the legal system when you see lawyers, judges, um, participating in, in this kind of thing. And this, this whole idea that the ends justify the means is, you know, appears in prosecutions as well as other walks of life. I'm not intimately familiar with the, the facts of that case. Maybe you, you know more about it. But um, uh, a further issue is whether there is sort of liability there. And that's been another issue recently in the Madoff case, because there were lawsuits brought against the SEC for dereliction of duty and failing to act on the information that they had. And the court recently ruled that, no, they're immune. They cannot be sued, and that the victims cannot receive any compensation for their failure to follow up on all of this. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think that's an injustice um, that, yes, I understand that people cannot be fearful of lawsuits and making good faith judgments about there, but when there's criminal behavior at issue, I, I'm actually, I don't know that this case so well, well but a, I thought you could, when it, when it actually was criminal behavior, that there could be, there are exceptions to There to are immunity, exceptions, but, but it was not applied in this case. A guy in Louisiana was uh, convicted of a murder. He was on death row for, uh, for 14 years, in prison for 18 years. He was eventually uh, exonerated on the basis of, uh, of DNA evidence, and then it came out that the prosecutors had withheld exculpatory evidence, which they've been obliged to turn over since a, since a Supreme Court decision in 1963. He filed the federal civil rights lawsuit. He got a $14 million judgment from a jury in Louisiana, a place not known for giving big jury verdicts to people who've been in prison. That decision was upheld by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, one of the most conservative appeals courts in the United States. And then the Supreme Court overturned it five to four, saying that the Brady violations um, and there were four prior Brady violations by the same office, but they said there wasn't a consistent pattern, and therefore he couldn't get his damages, and they took it away from him. It's a really outrageous decision. How do we determine if um, Rove lied to the president, and everyone in the White House thinks that they can lie to protect whatever they think they're protecting, how do we get beyond that? Or how does the president say, you know, you have, to, you have to tell me what's going on, because they say, well, in the interest of national security, you only need to know what you need to know, or whatever. So how do we as American citizens make sure that those in power are telling the truth, whether they're our congressmen or the people in the White House? Otherwise, it's just completely pervasive. You'll, it'll never stop. Well, we have to start by not voting for them. Uh, <laughs> and I think this is an area where integrity often comes into conflict, you know, that, that voters are, are faced with, with someone, a candidate, who's an you know, an obvious, you know, blowhard or liar. I don't want to mention Donald Trump in this context, but, um, uh, but nevertheless, against someone who they think is somehow going to benefit their own narrow self-interest, however they've defined that, by maybe, you know, giving, giving them a handout or not cutting their taxes or cutting their taxes or something like that. And so they, they choose the practical, what they think is the very the practical self-interested course and decide to ignore the character flaw and it seems to me that there ought to be sort of a baseline that we could agree uh, on a nonpartisan basis that would be required for anyone we would be willing to, to vote for. I personally have always felt that I cannot bring myself to vote for someone that whether they're convicted or not, that I happen to believe is a felon, including someone who may have lied under oath. 
Now, I could name some names of people, prominent candidates, but I don't want to get into that <laughs> here. But I would not personally want to vote for those people. And I think we all have to hold candidates, first and foremost, to high standards of character, and then get to the policy issues. I would love to see candidates from both parties where we don't have to be worrying about that, whether they lied or cheated or committed a crime somewhere previously. Because if they did it before, they're going to do it again. If they did it and got away with it, they're going to do it again. It was interesting that you mentioned the mortgage uh, debacle with the level of not just singularities in deception, but more or less an entire industry and practice of deception from application to appraisal all the way up to the bundling and tranching at Wall Street level. And, and the rating agencies, too. And the rating agencies, especially. I'm curious to the degree which, you know, apart from the singularities of individuals and personal conduct, how perjury and inappropriate conduct at seemingly every level was allowed to persist without any capacity to unwind or detect it, you know, where it was detected to take preventative action that would cause it to be curtailed. You know, it's a seemingly troubling tone when it's not just a singularity in personal conduct, but seemingly an entire industry built on it and how that compares with uh, the items you reference in your book. This whole financial crisis is a very powerful reminder of how significant the notion that everyone is doing something becomes in sort of a cultural milieu. I mean, the fact that there was a whole category of loans called liar's loans and the very language underscored the fact that there was something fundamentally wrong with them, and yet no one ever stopped to think about it. It, was, it reminds me of like uh, in, the, in the sort of Wall Street analyst problems and, and the sort of the research scandals that surfaced in before the dot-com bubble, where um, everyone seemed to know that when a Wall Street analyst said something was just a buy as opposed to a strong buy, that meant sell, <laughs> get out of there, the end, our Megan is coming. The language becomes completely corrupted as well. But it's a very powerful thing that when, when people think that everyone is doing the same thing, then why shouldn't you? And that's, that's what's so dangerous about this culture of lying, where you think everyone else is lying and getting away with it, and in fact advancing as a result of it. The pressure to join on becomes very, very strong. That was very true in the insider trading environment as well, where one hedge fund is lying, or is insider trading and getting away with it, and then the others say, well, they're doing it, and we, we're not going to be able to compete if we don't do it, so then they start doing it, and then pretty soon the thing just snowballs, and everyone is doing it. And it even, I think, infects, uh, it goes all the way up to the, the, the Federal Reserve. I mean, how, why didn't they step, why didn't they look at some of these, these practices? It's, in, it's unfathomable to me, uh, when it was staring at everyone in the face. Just touching on the, the subject, uh, you, you said you spoke to judges who said they uh, experienced lying every day and, and others in, in power who were in a position to do something about it. And did, did they say anything about why they didn't take any actions? In my experience, uh, uh, in, in, in lawsuits, there's uh, depositions uh, or, or declarations going each way. Some are absolutely implausible, and judges don't issue sanctions. They don't do anything, and, and it's as if they the judges, uh, you throw up their hands and, as if they're powerless to do anything about it. Did they anyone well, think, say to you why they felt well, that way? I, I think it's very much what we, I was just talking about in the last question, that even, it's, it's, it's amazing how easy it is for any of us to become sort of used to something that sort of becomes the norm and we stop thinking of it as being outrageous. Uh, it's one of the reasons that I like, wrote this book, because I, 
I thought that this was kind of happening, this whole area of false statements. And I think judges, I mean, I'm happy to say that since the book came out, I've been invited to speak at some of the big judicial conferences that uh, one federal judge actually contacted me and said she, she had gotten copies of the books for every single one of her ex-clerks. That I'm, I'm really gratified that you know, it is causing a few people to wake up uh, who are in a position to do something about it. But you see there's a vivid example in the book where Marion Jones, the, the great track star, who has like, lied rampantly through the Balco investigation, is finally forced to plead guilty to two laws. So she comes for her sentencing. She makes a, you know, a statement on the courthouse steps. She comes before the judge, and the judge says, okay, tell me in your own words you know, what, what, what you lied about and why. It's a standard procedure when you plead guilty to a crime. So she started to tell the story of how she used steroids, and then she said, well, but of course, I realize now they were steroids, but I didn't really know they were steroids when I took them. It's basically the Barry Bond story. And she said, well, I thought it was flaxseed oil. <laughs> and by the way, if you're ever using steroids, don't use the flaxseed oil alibi anymore. It's completely discredited. And <laughs> the judge said, okay, whoa, whoa, wait a minute here. May I remind you you're under oath? And he looks at the prosecutor and do you, he said, do you have anything to say about this? The prosecutor just sat there one of the prosecutors in the Bonds case as well, who I know felt he'd spent seven years getting to this point, and he was like sick of the whole thing, and he didn't want to have to like open it up all over again. He just wanted her to plead guilty, get her sentenced, and get her out of there and out of his life forevermore. He was so worn down. He said nothing. So when it was all done, the judge said, you know, frankly, I don't buy this. I don't believe this. You're still lying about it, but it's not, it's not you know, no one's objecting. It's not for me to say, so I'm sentencing you to final to the sentence. And she's still going around. She's now written a book in which she's repeated these lies. She's lying ever more. She's going around talking to young people, saying you know, that she was a victim and you know, it, it, it's, she never really t took steroids. Her husband was injecting her as he testified. That's not flaxseed oil. Uh, I mean, it, it is very troubling to me. That it seems to me, I don't want to get up on my high horse and sound judgmental or vindictive. I believe in forgiveness. I believe in redemption. We're, none of us is perfect. We've all made mistakes. But I always thought the first step is to at least be honest about what you did. And here you see in this context, the prosecutor said nothing. The judge couldn't do anything about it. And so that kind of behavior, we've got to stop. I'm sorry. I know it was, would have been a pain in the neck. They were tired of Marion Jones. But she should have been stopped right there and said, if you don't start telling the truth right now, we are going to charge you again. So start, talk, just start telling the truth. Which is certainly within the power of the judge. Yes, exactly. It's, fr it's frustrating. And I, certainly within the power of the prosecutor to object during one of those allocutions. Exactly. I think that's, I think that's a great... And that's one of the things also I think that comes out again in your book, just to interject, is that once you have the first lie, then people start doing other lies to, to cover up the sets of lies and it just compounds. And for some people, it's just hard... They just don't admit. First of all, I, I was very interested when you said uh, they lied because they could get away with it. And it made me think, well, it used to be people accumulated wealth to take care of their family. And if they did better than that, then they would do something, you know, do something for the common good. And where is this in their thinking is the, the consequences of their behavior for other people, never mind whether they get away with it. And then my last little question is, as a journalist, should, should these journalists, I mean, there's protecting your source, but what about with the public's right to know? And it seems that Judy Miller and, and Woodward both uh, kept the public from, you know, giving the public, uh, honoring the public's right to know. The, the whole First Amendment issue in the Scooter Libby case is very, very interesting. And um, I think Judy Miller was uh, tried to protect her confidential source. 
It went all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, no, you do not have a privilege. The Court of Appeals decision they upheld had an interesting, um, it wasn't a dissent, it was a concurring opinion, which the, no court has ever recognized a, an actual common law privilege for reporters to not testify when subpoenaed, uh, when they're a witness to a crime. But he said that if there were going to be such a privilege, it would surely apply only when there is a, a significant public interest being advanced by the protection of the source. And he said, uh, hello, there is no public interest in protecting a high-level White House aide who is trying to smear a critic of the administration, making almost exactly the point that you did. So personally, I think the press has got to really do some self-scrutiny, and they cannot just blindly dig in and say, we're never going to disclose. When the Supreme Court says you have to obey the law, I don't think we as reporters are any more above the law than anyone else, and it, it should be obeyed. Um, they, they, they thought they were going to get away with it. Well, you know, to be honest, they had gotten away with it. I, I can't resist telling one more anecdote about Martha Stewart because you learn so, so much sometimes about kind of what seemed like minor stories that are only indirectly related. When she did the insider trading and did the fateful call with Doug Fanuel, she was flying in her private jet to a vacation in Mexico right after Christmas. Mm. She took her best friend, Mariana Pasternak, a realtor from Connecticut, along with her on the plane, and they stayed at a luxury resort in Cabo San Lucas. While they were there, while passing through the lobby, Martha Stewart bumped into the billionaire financier Steve Schwartzman, um, and when she came back from the trip, she had an expense report filled out in which she billed the entire multi-thousand dollar cost of the private plane, the hotel, the helicopter to somebody's yacht, all the expenses, 100% billed to her company, Martha Stewart Living, owned by the shareholders, as a, quote, business conference with Steve Schwartzman. <laughs> so I called Steve Schwartzman and said, did you meet with Martha Stewart the day after Christmas that year? And he said, well, you know, we bumped into each other in the lobby and said hello, and I said, that's all I remember. <laughs> Okay, there's law number one. So then she had her accountant call Mariana Pasternak, her friend, and said, you have to pay your fair share of the trip. She got thousands of dollars out of this woman who I'm sure thought she was there as Martha's guest. So she double dipped on the, the, um, the, trip to, the vacation trip to Mexico. She lied about it on an expense report. Uh, she lied about it in her taxes. And she was paid twice for the same vacation. And then people say, well, why would Martha Stewart have insider traded to save $40,000? Well, I simply give you that story. <laughs> and if I can add one final note, during that trip, they are stand Mariana Pasternak and Martha Stewart, as recounted in Jim's book, are standing out on a hotel balcony, and Martha Stewart makes a sort of what seems, I'm sure, at the time, an offhand comment where she tells Mariana Pasternak, they're talking about this guy who's the chief executive of Imclone, Sam Waxel, who he and his family were going to dump all their stock, and, there, and, and that was the, what precipitated the call from her broker to her, and she said to Mariana Pasternak, I believe the quote was, and isn't it nice when you have a broker who tells you things like that? And that testimony was absolutely critical in securing her conviction. Yes, indeed. In fact, the, the, the sort of rich ending to that anecdote is that Mariana Pasternak had to cough over the money claims to have gone through this deep soul-searching process about whether she could bring herself to testify against her dear, dear friend, Martha Stewart. So guess what she decided? Yeah. Yes, I think I will tell that story. <laughs>